0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. What happens to microbes when their environment suddenly turns into a blistering hot hell? Scientists thought it would have to be adapt or die, but now they're finding otherwise. <laughs> Microbiologist Tammy Tobin drives her aging Prius through Centralia, Pennsylvania, as her windshield wipers fend off sleet. The highway through this part of town is lined with trees and overgrown lots. Tobin points out how the neighborhood has changed.
1: When I first started working out here, there was a store right here on the corner. Um, Yeah, this was all residential. Just
0: past the intersection of Center and Locust, Tobin hangs a right, heading to the base of a grassy slope behind a cemetery. Pull
1: in here then, take you through some of our sampling areas.
0: This hillside in eastern Pennsylvania looks like any other, but nearly 50 meters beneath our feet lurks a hidden menace. Centralia is burning. Or rather, the coal seam under what used to be the town of Centralia is burning. The coal has burned for more than 50 years and will likely burn for centuries to come. You can't see any visible flames, only puffs of steam and bits of grass where ice refuses to take hold. All but a handful of the town folk here fled when the government revoked Centralia's postal code in 2002. But Tobin isn't here to comb through the wreckage of a once thriving town. She's here to look at life amid fire. The heat and pollution from the underground fire is stressful for Centralia's flora and fauna, but it also created a crisis for the area's microbes. The trillions upon trillions of microscopic, single-celled organisms at home in Centralia's soil suddenly found themselves living in a veritable sauna. It was adapt or die, or so scientists thought. Tobin's former student, Ashley Shade, says this is a prime area for exploring what happens during an environmental disturbance. Shade is now a microbiologist at Michigan State University and a collaborator on the project. Tobin, Shade, and others are using Centralia's coal seam fire to test a new idea known as a microbial seed bank. Here's Tobin.
1: It really refers to the potential... The dormant microbes that are out there that give the soil communities the ability to grow in different kinds of environments. So to adapt so when the environment changes,
0: everything doesn't just die. Instead, you suddenly just get a new group of microbes there that were part of that original microbial seed bank. Scientists had found hints from lab and environmental experiments that such a seed bank exists, but Centralia is a rare opportunity to see it in the real world. No one knows exactly how the fire under Centralia started. Local legend has it that someone accidentally ignited the seam while burning trash just outside a mine shaft. What we know for sure is that shortly before Memorial Day in 1962, residents of Centralia reported that a fire had started in the town's coal mine, just east of the Odd Fellows Cemetery. It soon became obvious that even the most aggressive methods wouldn't stop the spread of the flames. Residents would simply have to wait for the fire to burn itself out. But in an area that dubbed itself Coal Country, there's no lack of underground material to burn through. So the fire outlasted the people. The release of toxic gases and the opening of sinkholes made the area too dangerous. Most people were forced out. The economy of the entire region has gone from bad to worse over the past several decades. Ashley Shade grew up a stone's throw from Centralia. Like everyone in this region, she knew about the fire, but she never gave it much thought. It wasn't until her first genetics class as an undergraduate at Susquehanna University in 2002 that she began to think of Centralia as something more than a nearby oddity. The year before, a team of geologists and soil scientists at Susquehanna had approached Tobin, who was Shade's professor at the time. They wanted to set up a formal study of how the fire was changing Centralia, they asked Tobin if she would help study the soil microbes. She knew nothing about microbiology, but she found the topic quirky and interesting, so she agreed.
1: When the environmental scientists came to me and said, "You know, gosh, we really need a microbiologist," I was like, "Well, you know, we'll see what happens." And every year, our juniors and every single senior at Susquehanna at that time did a full year of senior research with a faculty member. And we used to explain to all of our juniors what it was that we were working on. And the year that I started working in Centralia, I said, well, I've got this you know, ongoing bovine immunogenetics project, and then I've got this new project, and, I'm, you know, it probably won't work out. But if, if any of you want to work on that one, just let me know.
0: That was in 2002, and every single student chose to work on the Centralia project. <laughs>
1: very hard to get people to work on bovine immunogenetics after that.
0: Both Shade and Tobin immediately fell in love with centralia.
1: I just really loved studying that environment and those microbes. It has been endlessly fascinating to me.
0: Tobin and her team staked out a range of sites, spanning three contrasting areas.
1: And because centralia is burning along fairly well-mapped coal seams, and mine shafts, we could predict the direction and the speed with which the fire front was progressing. We got this site and the fire was predicted to move into that site over time.
0: So they picked one site above a spot where the fire had never been, one site above where the fire was currently burning, and one site where the subsurface flames had already come and gone. Tobin and her fellow scientists could track what was happening to the soil in real time. So
1: we went every summer for five years, and we dug these soil cores in a grid and did soil chemistry and soil structure and looked at the microbes just in the surface soils and looked to see what the community structures looked like.
0: This would give the researchers an idea of how the soil microbes changed over time. At the time, sequencing the genomes of large numbers of environmental microbes was prohibitively expensive. Scientists had to chop the DNA into small pieces. Each different species of microbe yielded a collection of genetic fragments that could be sorted by size. Scientists would then use a probe to highlight ribosomal DNA sequences unique to each species, They could then derive a genetic fingerprint for a microbe and identify its species by comparing their results to a large database of known prokaryotes. This ribotyping was more time-consuming and less precise than current molecular methods. But Tobin says it provided her and Shade with their first clues about whether anything survived Centralia's below-ground inferno.
1: Some of the soil temperatures were really hot. And the question was, would we even find anything in those really hot soils at all? Because the temperature fluctuations could be pretty dramatic. It fluctuates with all kinds of climatic and geological factors. And so when we're going to some of the hot areas, wondered if there was going to be anything really there living at all. Could things adapt quickly enough?
0: Depending on how much oxygen could reach the fire, the flames under Centralia could burn as hot as 1,350 degrees Fahrenheit. Ground temperatures sometimes exceeded 900 degrees Fahrenheit. To give you an idea of how hot that is, in 2007, a German documentary film crew tried to fry a single egg by a steam vent. The egg didn't fry. Instead, the hot soil charred it beyond recognition before the crew could even frame their shot. Under such extreme conditions, Tobin says it was entirely possible that nothing had survived. But to her delight, she was wrong. In a 2005 study in the journal Soil Science, Tobin and her colleagues showed that microbes don't just survive in the soil above actively burning areas. Some species actually thrive there. The overall level of diversity was the same in hot areas, with temperatures ranging between 90 to 170 degrees Fahrenheit, as in areas that fire had yet to reach. The researchers looked more closely. They found that while the overall bacterial diversity decreased with higher temperatures, even the hottest samples still held thriving microbial communities.
1: The first few things that we isolated from there were Thermophilic bacteria.
0: That's a type of heat-loving bacteria.
1: And thermophilic bacteria that had already been identified and in other places in the world.
0: They resembled thermophiles found near geothermal hot springs in Iceland, but the data wasn't detailed enough to say just how closely the organisms were related. And it couldn't tell them whether the microbes living over the fire had lurked there all along in very low numbers. Or maybe they'd been blown in or had otherwise arrived from afar, perhaps from other geothermal areas around the globe. It was anyone's guess as to which might be right. As Tobin and Shade continued chipping away at the microbial mystery in Centralia, Indiana University biologist Jay Lennon had a mystery of his own. As the cost of genetic sequencing plummeted and computer programs grew more sophisticated, it became possible for researchers to sequence DNA directly from environmental samples. These studies are known as metagenomics. Here's Lennon. We
2: could go into an environment, whether it be a host or a lake or soil, and extract nucleic acids, usually Mm -hmm. DNA, and find out who's there and in what Abundances.
0: For the first time, scientists didn't need to culture organisms to study them in the lab. But Alexander Loy, a microbiologist at the University of Vienna, says the number of organisms doesn't tell the whole story. The assumption
2: is that at that time, at this place, maybe not so long ago at least, this organism has contributed to the ecosystem functions because the environment was right to allow population to increase in abundance of course it could also mean you know that this population is already dying so if we just measure the abundances it doesn't really tell us right away if organisms are
0: active or not. To assay metabolic activity, biologists use strategies like measuring how much RNA an organism is making. Because RNA is a much shorter lived molecule than relatively durable DNA, it's a truer indicator of current metabolism and not just the cell's existence. It's similar to how a census taker can count all of the buildings on a city block, but you still can't glean from that info whether those buildings are homes or businesses, or if they're currently occupied. For those answers, the census worker might need to conduct interviews door-to-door or measure water and electricity usage. When Lennon began looking at biological samples from lake water, soil, and even feces in 2010— Over and over again, he found the microbial equivalent of abandoned buildings. Lots of species were there, but a large proportion of the microbes in seemingly every environment didn't appear to be doing anything. These dormant microbes, with very reduced metabolic activity, exist at the threshold between life and death. They might not be doing many of the activities typically associated with life, such as growing, eating, or replicating their genes— But Lennon says they're also not dead.
2: I define dormancy as the ability to enter a reversible state of reduced metabolic activity. They can enter a dormant state, but they also need to be able to get out of it, right? And so those transitions into and out of dormancy can be due to an organism's ability to detect environmental cues, but it can also be just stochastic random
0: The concept of dormant microbes is at least a century old, but biologists thought they were rare. Most of what was known about dormancy came from bacteria that formed hardy spores, including Bacillus anthracis, the soil microbe famous for causing anthrax. The ability to form spores can protect a bacterium from everything, from high doses of ultraviolet and gamma radiation, to prolonged drought, to the vacuum of space— Lennon says it's pretty remarkable if you start looking through the literature.
2: There's plenty of examples where microbes can be recovered from ancient materials like amber, (laughs) halite crystals, or permafrost. And people can date those materials in some cases to in the excess of millions of years. They can recover viable bacteria from amber. But I think the point is that If you look at the body size of a microbe, you'd expect that on average it should be only living, you know, days to weeks to months at most.
0: That's the downside of relying on spores as a survival strategy. Ten percent of the bacillus anthracis genome is devoted to forming spores, and the process can take more than five hours start to finish. With such high biological startup costs, this ability only evolved once in a single group of bacteria, as far as researchers know. This suggested that such Lazarus microbes are tiny oddities. But data from Lennon and other microbiologists indicates that dormancy might be the rule, not the exception.
2: It seems the fraction or proportion of bacterial or microbial cells in soils is dominated by these seed banks. Like more than 90% of the individuals, more than 90% of the microbial biomass is metabolically inactive.
0: Dormancy explains how up to 1,000 microbe cells per gram of soil could coexist. In some sense, they didn't, at least not all at the same time. Rather than using up valuable resources by fighting each other for food and space, microbes could instead enter a dormant phase to wait for better environmental conditions. Dormancy also gives microbes a way to survive the feast or famine waves of food and other essentials, plus the limitations of extreme environments. Dormant organisms aren't as hardy as spores, but their inactive state means they don't have to waste valuable resources coping with stressors. Temperatures that might kill a rapidly dividing organism can be bearable if the microbe doesn't have to find food, make proteins, or attend to other housekeeping tasks. As a result, the dormant organisms can tolerate a wider range of temperatures and other environmental conditions than if they were growing as usual. Borrowing a phrase from botany, Lenin called this vast reserve of dormant organisms the microbial seed bank, which was just waiting around for the right environmental conditions to grow and thrive.
2: What happens if we think we're under conditions of global change when there's increasing temperatures, there's increasing drought, there's a lot of carbon that's stored in the soil, equivalent to the amount in the atmosphere. If we found that instead of 90 percent of soil microorganisms being dormant, if it were 50 percent... What would that do to the storage of active carbon in the soil? Would that matter for understanding fluxes? And if you really started to scale up, could that potentially be important for ecosystems at regional, landscape, or global scales? I don't know for sure the answers to those questions, but we know that microbes are important.
0: Scientists used to believe that the soil microbes found in the deserts of Antarctica were the same as those found in the Amazon rainforest. But studies showed that soil microbes are highly adapted to local conditions. For this reason, Lennon doesn't think the Earth has a global microbial seed bank. Instead, each soil community, like the dirt in Centralia, has its own local seed bank. Local microbes deposit themselves into the seed bank when conditions are less than ideal. Microbes from elsewhere can also hitchhike into the area, arriving on the feet and feathers of birds or blowing in on the wind. Some of them may try to make a go of it and either thrive or die out. But others will hunker down and wait. Microbial ecologist Genoviva Esteban of Bournemouth University in the UK saw the microbial seed bank at work in Priestpot. That's a 10,000-year-old pond in northern England's Lake District. Esteban brought samples of microbial eukaryotes from Priestpot back to the lab to grow. Remember that eukaryotes are small, single-celled organisms with a nucleus— like their nucleus-deficient, prokaryotic brethren, eukaryotes are challenging to grow in lab cultures. When Esteban looked at drops of lake water under the microscope, she saw hundreds of types of swirling and swimming creatures. But in the lab, she could identify only about 20 species growing in the culture bottle. Then she divided the culture and grew it in a range of environments.
2: We really squeeze our imagination saying well what what else can we try in order to find as many to encourage as many microbes as possible to come out of the seed bank
0: three months later esteban had 135 species she says there were all these hidden organisms just waiting for the right conditions so they could emerge the same thing happened when esteban took samples from andalusia's salt pans The hypersaline remnants of ancient seas are in what's now southern Spain. Initially, she could detect only seven microbial species in samples from six different salt flats. She gradually diluted the samples and let them grow for five weeks or more. And the number of species shot up to 95.
2: What the seed bank is going to achieve, if you like... Is that ecosystem function will never stop. Because there is a constant turnover of species and there is a constant change in the microbial community. Even if the environmental conditions change, then the microbial communities may change, but the ecosystem will carry on functioning because it doesn't run out of the microorganisms.
0: And those microorganisms are what feed the food chain. In a sense, Esteban's deliberate environmental manipulations mimicked what happens when conditions shift in the natural world, including what happens as the climate continues to warm. High in the Alaskan Arctic, Janet Jansen, a microbiologist at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, has tracked how global warming affects microbes in Hess Creek. For thousands of years, the subsurface soil in the area had been permanently frozen. But global warming is changing that, causing the underground soil layers to begin to thaw. In results published in Nature in 2011, Janssen found that after thawing a sample for just 48 hours, she could begin to see a shift in the community's DNA— This hinted at a rise in the abundance of carbon-eating bacteria, eking out a living by using iron as an energy source. This isn't the usual type of microbe found in the permafrost. Later sampling of both thawed and frozen sites backed up by RNA analysis confirmed that the DNA wasn't lying. In the thawed soil, the iron-reducing microbes had been largely replaced by others using organic carbon for food. Jansen found these differences were inherent in the system. So
2: those are very extreme differences in function, going from iron reduction in permafrost to methane production in a sod bog sample. For most of these scenarios, the organisms are already there, probably at low numbers, and then the environment selects for such populations are able to
0: thrive. Microbiologist Alexander Loy says from an ecological perspective, seed banks provide the system with a kind of insurance policy.
2: A nice example is here if you take an antibiotic, then you will reduce the diversity of the organisms in your gut, but there might be some antibiotic-resistant genes and then can grow up again and fulfill similar ecosystem functions and then fill in. Ecological
0: niche that was open for this perturbation. Seed banks function the same way, with dormant organisms becoming dominant when environmental conditions change. Tammy Tobin and Ashley Shade hypothesized that a microbial seed bank could explain some of what they were seeing in Centralia. Their long term experiments were cranking along, giving them the perfect opportunity to test this idea. But that's when suddenly disaster struck. Just as Centralia has attracted plenty of oddball microbes, it has also attracted weirdos of the human variety. Although the area is officially off-limits to trespassers, a certain number of tourists still show up. And for Tobin and Shade, that became a problem.
1: We saw some pretty interesting stuff the first couple of years. We got the data when the mine fire was first there. We got the data as it moved into a new area. And then the year that we went back to get data for how it might start to look when it started to recover.
0: That was in 2006.
1: A bunch of folks had gone in and dug the whole area up. It looked like it was a war zone. They'd been getting antique bottles and glass. They dug up the whole sample site. It was gone.
0: Overnight, they lost half a decade of work. By the time Tobin got her research fully up and running again, Shade had completed her doctorate in microbiology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and found a faculty position at Michigan State University. She never forgot her time at Centralia, though. So in 2014, she called up her old professor and asked Tobin to collaborate. That October, Shade and her lab manager flew to Pennsylvania. The group armed themselves with trowels, quart-sized canning jars, and bleach to sanitize their shovels and shoes. They descended onto what remained of the town and began taking soil samples. The team dug up soil from several locations once again, over an active fire, over regions that had burned and since cooled, and over parts of the mine that had never caught fire. They carefully packed the dirt-filled canning jars into a large cooler. Then, Shade returned to East Lansing and began to study the soil in her lab. She started by comparing the species living in each of the three groups. She initially believed that the microbes from the actively burning areas would have the least variation between sites. She figured the challenges of growing in such extreme heat would severely limit what kinds of organisms could grow. After the fire burned itself out and the ground cooled, Shade expected that the microbes would return to a more diverse state. But she and Tobin found the exact opposite. Microbial populations in the hot areas diverged and then reconverged as the ground cooled over a period of 10 to 20 years. Shade says there seems to be an inherent capacity within microbial communities that's sleeping. She says the communities have an immense capacity to respond and recover. Regardless of how the microbial populations changed, Shade and Tobin hypothesized that Centralia's microbial seed bank allowed the system to respond to the temperature surge from the fire and return to its initial state. A further study appeared in the peer-reviewed open journal PLOS One, It showed that the seed bank may have also allowed the soil to respond to increased levels of arsenic and other heavy metals that the fire released. And that's the entire point of the seed bank, to keep the ecosystem going. Biologist Jay Lennon says the process also benefits individual species.
2: They're not cranking out and replicating and dividing at the razor edge of life and
0: death. Lennon says that means going dormant is better than dying. Exactly what triggers this dormancy remains unclear, though. And scientists don't know whether the entire population of a microbe species will opt for dormancy or if some might become dormant as a way to help their brethren that try to make a go of it. For now, the role of the microbial seed bank, and even its very presence, remain conjectural. For now, the role of the microbial seed bank, and even its very presence, remain conjectural. Shade and her grad students drive back to the abandoned town every fall to gather more samples. On a recent trip, she took soil samples from never-burned sites, brought them back to the lab, and began heating them up under controlled conditions to see how they responded. Shade hopes this ongoing set of experiments can begin to answer some fundamental questions about the role of seed banks. Those answers won't just provide insight into what's happening at Centralia or at thousands of other coal mine fires throughout the world. They could also yield valuable clues as to how the world's microbes will respond to a warming climate. Centralia's position at the heart of climate issues is based on more than just its microbes. Even as the town's coal continues to burn below ground, several wind turbines have been built on a nearby ridge. Whether the town will be able to demonstrate the kind of resilience shown by its local microbes remains to be seen. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Carrie Arnold's full article, Heat-Loving Microbes Once Dormant, Thrive over decades-old fire on our website, quantamagazine.org. How life and death spring from disorder, a new physics theory of life, those are just a couple of topics covered in the Quanta book Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now wherever you buy books or to listen to on Audible.